0: Manufacturing dissent since 1996, this is Hell. When disasters strike, disasters like the devastating 2010 earthquake in Haiti that killed at least a quarter million people and displaced countless more. When that kind of disaster happens and the U.S. responds by sending in the troops to help those in desperate need. The establishment media patriotically reports on these heroics and the kindness and charity of the United States military to help when it is needed most. It reminds us here in the States that we're the good guys, always willing to give a helping hand when the chips are down. Problem is, the priority of the U.S. militarized response to disaster, as well as U.N. peacekeepers, is not to do whatever is necessary to assist victims of disaster. Nope. The priority is making certain that refugees don't flee for the United States or try to get out of the country to find medical care elsewhere to seek refuge in the homes of family members who may live overseas. The Western militarized and carceral approach to disaster relief does not relieve victims from disaster, and it's difficult to argue that they could even if they tried, as the real disaster afflicting the people of Haiti and all of the Caribbean is 500 years of colonialism, creating a level of Ecological degradation that makes any real recovery incredibly difficult without complete transformation of the island nation from the bottom to the top, very top of government. In a few minutes, we'll find out about life on islands and how it may not be as isolated as we think. And that, in fact, islanders vulnerable to climate change may show us how we can react and respond in times of crisis. And with more and more crises pending... It's time we start paying attention, when, and we'll learn all about this when we speak with sociologist Mimi Scheller, author of Island Futures, Caribbean Survival in the Anthropocene. Mimi is also the author of several other books, including Citizenship from Below, Erotic Agency and Caribbean Freedom, and Mobility Justice, The Politics of Movement. In an Age of Extremes. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you, sir?
1: Mr. Man.
0: <laughs> yes, sir. i how, was doing well. How was your holidays? How was your trip to Pennsylvania and back? I
1: ended up not going. We decided it would just be best to forego that trip. At this time.
0: I find the contrast between you and Daphne very uh, interesting. So your parents were telling you, do not come because... It yeah. might be of danger. Plus, of
1: you know, they're isolated, and it would be just sitting around the house, not doing anything with them, basically. Meanwhile,
0: Daphne is in Chile, and her parents are telling her not to leave their home <laughs> to come to the United States because they find danger here in the U.S. Well, I'm glad that you didn't go anywhere, because I was a little bit worried about you going around. Not just because yeah. your I mean, parents... I would
1: have, I would have just been driving straight there and hanging out there, but, I, you know, it would have been fine. But, but it's probably better overall, so. So what'd you do instead? Uh, Mr. Man? I caught up on some of my movie blacklists. No,
0: you did. You did. What did you watch? Mr. Man. <laughs> you keep saying Mr. Man. Do you know what that, that no. phrase oh, No.
1: It's from, uh, I think, well, I think it was popularized by this movie from the 1990s, a Stephen King adaptation called Misery. Oh. Did you watch that? I during, saw parts I mean, of that. I mean, it's really old, so it's like-
0: It's a disturbing movie.
1: But, I, but the- uh, um. The woman who's like the no, I can't, torturer, if torturer, you will. Right. She uses that phrase, Mr. Man. Oh, Mr. I, Man, throughout the whole thing. I, I didn't. And I think that's where it became
0: popular. Right? I see. I see. So uh, and isn't that Kathy Bates yes, torturing James Conn? Yes, 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 it is. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. So if you are into that kind of fetish, of watching
1: there's, Kathy Bates torture James oh, Caan? There's two very disturbing scenes in the movie. It's pretty awesome.
0: <laughs> All right. So it gets Richard's disturbingly awesome thumb of approval. Uh, but far more important, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Oh boy. Um... <laughs> now you got to go look it up. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like me to tell people what it is?
1: Uh, yeah, because I can't find it in the email right now. But I had it on the website. So.
0: <laughs> all right. This yeah. week's question from hell is how should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? How should we commemorate my 25 years of radio service here on This Is Hell? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute completely listener-supported. This is hell Remember Without you We got nothing We don't take Any commercial money We don't take Any kind of Foundation money We don't get Any grants We're not a Not for profit We're we're so not a not-for-profit that we can't afford to be a not-for-profit. So remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to either myself or alex at chuck at or alex at And we we got to have your answer by the end of Thursday show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. During this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff looks a war horse in the mouth. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service following our guest? Quick update for those of you who do not already know and are interested in this sort of thing. So it looks like the Democrats have won both U.S. Senate seats in the state of Georgia, giving them, with the vice president's vote, a majority in both the Senate and the House. Which means we now get to watch and see what the Democratic Party is really all about. Just like we did from 1992 to 1994 when the Clinton administration dismissed all progressive demands despite having control of the House and Senate, as the Obama administration did from 2008 to 2010, again dismissing all progressive demands for things like universal health care and instead coming up with a system that led to health care insurers' stocks going through the roof. So get ready for two years of the Biden administration doing nothing but losing their base, as well as control of the House or Senate or both. And man, does it appear that the Democratic Party likes it that way. You are listening to God's favorite radio show or podcast or whatever the hell this thing is. Prove me wrong. This is hell. And we can only assume we are God's favorite because you are a very important part of this is hell and that our very best guest and topic suggestions come from you, our listening audience. If there's anything you want to hear discussed on the show or a person you want to hear interviewed please contact us by emailing chuck at thisishell.com direct messaging us via twitter at thisishellradio or sending us a message via facebook at facebook.com slash radio. and richard i hate to tell you this but can you please go turn off the heat because yes, i sir. forgot to and if you hear a suggestion you like, feel free to second that suggestion or suggest a different guest on the same topic. By the way, the reason I asked, just asked Richard to turn off the heat is because we're afraid that the heating system sound comes through our microphones, which means that even if it's zero degrees outside, we have to have absolutely no heat here in the studio during our show. I mean, it's baffled in a way that you can't, you probably can't hear it, but we're always just worried that you can. Anyway. Anyway. Martin in Chicago sent us an email writing, Dear Chuck, I don't know if you've ever had anyone on your show to discuss Anne Rand's life, philosophy, or impact on American politics. But if you're interested in exploring that topic, I suggest contacting Historian. Lisa Duggan. She recently wrote a book On the subject called Mean Girl And was a guest on Daniel Denver's The Dig podcast. It was a fascinating Conversation and I think you should have her on As a guest. Daniel's been on the show on, Here on This Is Hell a couple of times in the past Be well and stop getting dizzy all the time Martin F. in Chicago uh, Yeah The uh, vertigo that I was suffering From about for a few weeks Prior to the holidays uh, That seems to go, have gone away After about five Maybe seven days of still suffering from it during the holidays Ah, We'll see how it goes Anyway, back in 2012 we interviewed author Gary Weiss about his book And Rand Nation, The Hidden Struggle For America's Soul, an interview that is not Currently available online I'm not certain if we actually shared that Conversation on Patreon yet, but If we have not, Martin, we will share it On next Friday's Patreon podcast So that's in nine days from now At patreon.com slash thisishell Because we already have another interview racked up For this Friday, but it might be a good time To reveal Rand's tyrannical Thinking as we are wrapping up another Holiday season, and nothing says the holiday's like an rand in fact here's a quote from an rand testifying in front of the house on american activities committee the senator joe mccarthy red scare inquiry of the 1950s here's an rand's testimony regarding the holiday movie classic it's a wonderful life this is just so great an rand said it's a wonderful life is a holiday movie that doesn't mention christmas until the 99 minute mark It takes a mostly secular reading of the holiday as a time to take stock of your life, of the true blessings of family and friends. Disgusting. To those obsessed with the preferred holiday greeting or the color of Santa's skin, this must sound like quite the communist subversion indeed. Yes, nothing says the holidays like Ayn Rand reminding us all oh, that Zuzu's petals are nothing more than a Marxist dog whistle. As to as for uh, Jimmy Stewart's guardian angel friend Clarence Oddbody, probably a tanky. I mean, you gotta wonder about someone going around saying they're an angel named Clarence Oddbody. Definitely sounds. Like a communist agent provocateur We also got a guest suggestion from Teresa at Chicago Socialist Alternative That brings up an issue we discussed With all of you last year about politicians Being here on the show Teresa writes, my name is Teresa Powers And I'm a socialist here in Chicago And I'm reaching out with an inquiry suggestion To interview the economist and Since 2014, a member of Seattle City Council Shama Sawant On your show. You might be aware, but Shama is currently facing a right wing recall campaign in Seattle, and it's a big threat to the seat. She won re-election last fall in the most expensive election Seattle City Council has ever seen. Jeff Bezos and his billionaire friends dumped millions into her opponent's campaign in hopes to defeat a true fighter for working people. With a strong grassroots campaign, Shama was able to keep her seat and continue the absolutely critical work being a voice of working people in City Hall. I'm sure you are familiar with what Shama has accomplished since her election in 2013. 2013? I thought it was 2014. Uh, She was elected in 2013 and she took office in 2014. Uh, the $15 minimum wage, the Amazon tax, the first in-nation ban on using chemical weapons against protesters, landmark renters, rights laws like the ban on winter evictions, and so much more. Big business and the right wing are furious about the impact of socialist politics and social movements in Seattle, and the inspiring example it has set for working people around the world. So they've launched a recall campaign to get her out. This has big implications for socialists in office all across the country and the world. The saying is is an injury to one, is an injury to all, and attacking Shama is, I think, just the beginning of attacks on socialists in office as they begin making waves in the halls of power. Our Democratic Socialist alderman here in Chicago could very well be next. All of this is to say the Washington State Supreme Court will be ruling on Thursday, January 7th. That's tomorrow. Whether the recall campaign stands and we are holding a virtual rally to reject the recall on January 9th, Saturday. I am asking if you have any time to fit Shama to uh, in before this rally obviously we do not because we only have one more show before the rally and we already have that booked to help us raise the profile of Solidarity Campaign and talk to your listeners about the importance of revolutionary socialists in office. You can also learn more about the Solidarity Campaign here at ShamaSolidarity.org that's K-S-H A-M-A Solidarity.org. Thanks so much for your time. Solidarity and stay safe. Teresa at Chicago Socialist Alternative. Shama is a member of Teresa's group, Socialist Alternative, which describes itself as a Marxist organization, a revolutionary party fighting for a socialist world, and says that capitalism cannot be made to work for the working class. Now, we have a rule here on This Is How that is more a guideline that we do not have anyone on from business or politics because... That's the only people who are given access to the establishment media. Only politicians and those in business are seemingly allowed to guide public opinion. Experts, analysts, specialists in fields, not so much. So, listeners, I hate to get back to a topic that you so clearly voiced an opinion on last year, but should we have politicians on the show? Last year, you told us nearly to a person, almost every person who responded, that we should not ever... As in, never have politicians on the show. So let me reframe the question. Should we have as guests on the show elected politicians who are clearly not members of the two dominant political parties here in the United States? Email us, tweet at us, send us a message via Facebook, and we'll share your thoughts with everyone again. If you want to find out what is happening in the recall effort against Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant, go to shamasolidarity.org. By the way, we did reach out to Shama's office back in 2014 when she did take office, when she was first elected, and we never got a response. We got... Plenty more guest and topic suggestions over the break, and we'll be getting caught up on all of them with you over the next week or so. If you have any suggestions or anything you'd like to say about the show, email me at at chuckatthisishell.com. Direct message us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or message us via Facebook, facebook facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and we'll read yours on air. Coming up on This Is Hell. Disaster relief is a disaster piled upon the disaster of colonialism, and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is how should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service here on This Is Hell, as well as telling you what's happening on tomorrow's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States where property has more rights than people, this is is hell. Patriotic establishment media often bends over backwards to pat the United States on the back for a generosity in times of crisis after sending in the troops to help survivors of disasters get their lives back together. But what if a militarized response to disaster is the last thing that's needed in places like Haiti, where they have been suffering from military occupations and militarized responses for 500 years? Here to help us better understand disaster recovery and what a just recovery might look like. Sociologist Mimi Scheller is author of Island Futures, Caribbean Survival in the Anthropocene. Welcome to This is Hell, Mimi.
2: Hi, Chuck. Thanks. It's great to be here. And now that it's your 25th anniversary, you're reminding me that when I finished my PhD dissertation about that long ago, (laughs) my very first radio interview was with W.U.R.D. here in Philadelphia, which is one of the oldest black independent radio stations.
0: Oh, wow. That's fantastic. I'm just curious. Do you remember what you were talking about, what book you were talking about, what work you were talking about 25 years ago when you were on W.U.R.D.?
2: Yeah, it was my first book, which is called uh, Democracy After Slavery, Black Publics and Peasant Radicalism in Haiti and Jamaica. And it was actually the beginning of the entire um, sort of journey of my uh, research about the Caribbean region and about Haiti that led me to this most recent book, Island Futures.
0: Well, what do you think got you interested in that? I know that's a really cliche question that you hear in a book review, but I'm just curious, what do you think got your interest when in your studies in that area?
2: It, it came partly, I tell a story in the preface of the book about the influence of my mother's political activism and um, solidarity with women's movements, peace movements uh, around the world, um, asylum seeker movements and sanctuary city movements here in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia has been a really important location of these kinds of transnational solidarity movements. And it's a city that's had a lot of um, refugees and migrants who've settled here. And uh, that and our own history of being, um, you know, the location of the, you know, the Independence Hall and the Revolution and our sort of colonial history, which was always about this progressive story of freedom and emancipation and the Liberty Bell, and yet all around me, I could see deep, deep poverty, segregation, gun violence, uh, all of those problems, uh, the police state, you know, Frank Rizzo and the bombing of the MOVE um, house and all of those things. And so for me, growing up. I always wanted to connect and understand um, the politics of racial inequality in Philadelphia with the bigger story of, you know, the 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 system of transatlantic slavery that had kind of brought us all here.
0: And I find that fascinating. First of all, I saw a documentary over the break uh, about uh, the Move House and the bombing that happened there. I can't remember the name of it right now, even though it was exceptional. But it just reminds me of uh, people who have been on their show dating back to the 1990s, like Cheryl Hunkala and the People's, uh, Poor People's Campaign and how all that activism uh, emanates from uh, Philadelphia. But also that the issues that are faced by poor people in Philadelphia are— not dissimilar from the issues and the colonization and the transatlantic slave trade that affects situations like in Haiti and the response to the earthquake in 2010. You write about mobility injustice. So for people to understand uh, this conversation that we're going to have, they need to understand what mobility injustice is. And you use the term M slash mobility to reference both those who have mobility and those whose mobility is challenged. So what do you mean by mobility injustice and how can it affect people not only in Philadelphia, but people in Haiti as well?
2: Yeah. So, um, I just want to say first that it's a great documentary movie that you mentioned. It's called let the fire burn. That's
0: what it was. Yeah. Yeah, That was fantastic.
2: Yep. And, uh, so mobility, justice is a way to to talk about the connections of all of these different kinds of inequality around who has the right to move and also the capability to move in different ways and some people have very privileged forms of mobility and it's kind of it's sort of written into american mythology right of the the idea of the um, frontier and the open road and, you know, that we all have freedom and this sort of individualistic, rugged, um, mobile culture, uh, a culture of movement. But on the other hand, there's another kind of mobility, which is the coerced mobility of enslavement, right, and being forced to work on a plantation. And then also the forced displacement of indigenous peoples. So first step is to say, okay, mobility does not always mean freedom. Mobility can mean being enslaved and transported, you know, across the Atlantic ocean. Mobility can mean being displaced and forced, you know, like the Cherokee trail of tears. Um, So first to like puncture that balloon, that mobility is always freedom. And then to say, okay, some people's mobility actually implies other people's immobility or coerced movement, and to link those things together. And I'm talking about it at that big national scale, but it also, you can think of it like in a city, that when we have cars moving around and cars kind of dominating the streets, it impinges on other people's ability to walk or ride a bike safely. So mobility justice is a way to like think about those those connections, those relationships between the power of some people's mobility and how it affects and impacts other people as well as the natural environment and what are you know the sort of external impacts of some people 's freedom of movement
0: You cite uh, quite a few. Past guests on our show Naomi Klein Keller Easterling Amelia Moore And you write Places suffering Catastrophic events Reveal how the dynamic Intertwining of transportation Communication Provisioning And scheduling systems Can rapidly unravel And along with them Civic order Markets And everyday life Yet communities Living through disaster Are also noted For their resilience With so often Which so often Takes the form of Altruism Resourcefulness Generosity And collective mutual aid As Rebecca Solnit Another past guest And our show describes in Haiti To what extent can that story of heroic resilience Obfuscate the real problems faced by those in disasters Over the long term Because too often I have seen, especially TV news Flying into a disaster area Showing the devastation, one day Followed by a day of the international response Then another of the locals' resilience And then the media leaves Never to return to see what happens moving forward So can that story of heroic resilience Obfuscate the real problems faced by those in disasters?
2: Exactly. Um, That's the real problem with it. And I mean, it's kind of ironic that the um, Biden-Harris campaign has taken the slogan Build Back Better because there's a really um, strong critique of the the Build Back Better discourse that that existed uh, after the earthquake in Haiti and in other post-disaster context, because it's this idea that there's been this like momentary disruption And that then we're going to just kind of return to normal and we're going to do it um, by making things even more of what they were. So we're going to have sort of more and better of the same. And resilience is this kind of return to that past state. But what it fails to recognize is that the past state, the, the origin point before the disaster was already deeply, deeply enmeshed in catastrophic histories histories that are much deeper temporalities, so 500 years of um, colonialism and enslavement and displacement and land grabs and extractive industries and pollution and health disparities and poverty and debt, all of those things are not going to sort of bounce back in the resilience of disaster recovery unless you have a political sort of mobilization that actually focuses on those things. And that means more than just building back better. It's not just about infrastructure.
0: And you point out that in the, you know, reaction, the response to uh, Katrina in 2004 in New Orleans, people realized that the shortcomings of a lack of a robust state to have an effective response, yet nothing seems to have been learned. What explains to you the shortcomings of neoliberalism, if you want to call it that, uh, in disaster response and the unwillingness, the apparent unwillingness to recognize the shortcomings of neoliberalism when it comes to crisis.
2: I would say it's not so much that we didn't learn the lessons. It's that there was a concerted political struggle happening. And some people are winners and some are losers. And the, the power of um, the sort of State uh, capitalist industrial complex to kind of rebuild things on their own terms often drives disaster response. And, you know, Naomi Klein wrote about this um, in terms of disaster capitalism. And so, like, the idea that, oh, well, we made mistakes and we're going to learn from them, that's a very kind of liberal idea of, you know, that we just need more enlightenment and we need more academic research and we need more, you know, funding to go and understand what went wrong. That's actually part of the problem. That's part of the disaster, industrial, humanitarian, academic research complex that goes in after disasters and actually um, makes things worse. Because the people who have been affected and are displaced are often the ones who don't uh, have the self-determination, don't have the decision making, don't have the infusion of capital to rebuild their homes and to, you know, figure out how they want their neighborhoods to work.
0: You write that the international humanitarian response to the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, however, also brought to light another underside disaster quickly identified by Beverly Mullings, Marion Werner and Linda Peake, a militarized and carceral response that was, quote, conducted in the name of humanitarian assistance in ways that dispossessed the rights of Haitians to be treated as people and thereby revealed the deep associations between racism, humanitarianism, and ongoing capitalist Processes. What's wrong with the militarized and policed response to disaster? Here in the States, in response to the coronavirus outbreak, the National Guard was being hailed for coming out to help the public and building these temporary hospitals, as the National Guard is commended every time there is a disaster. Last week, I learned that in the Colorado Senior Facility, where the first cases of the COVID variant were detected in the U.S., that those who tested positive were National Guard members who were working in the facility because it could no longer provide the personnel to provide senior health services. I then heard from a Canadian listener who said the Canadian National Guard or equivalent went into private senior facilities at the beginning of the outbreak to fill the roles of employees who are no longer reporting to work, either by choice or due to illness. So what's wrong with the militarized and policed response, the kind of response that we always hail and herald and commend whenever there is a disaster?
2: Well, first, I would say, I mean, uh, thank goodness for those uh, troops, uh, National Guard, military, who are often very young and who put their bodies on the line for all of us. So I do, you know, I totally respect them and everything they do. Um, so with no disrespect to them, the the problematic part of it is that the, the military um, has Uh, expertise in logistics they have expertise in moving people moving equipment moving you know supplies that's that's what militaries are all about that's what they do humanitarian interventions or responses they need to do those things too they need to move people equipment supplies and so they join with military logistics operations to help them do that now what happened in Haiti in 2010, after the earthquake, um, of which we're, you know, we're approaching the 11th anniversary um, on January 12th, is that the U.S. military took over the airport, the international airport, the Toussaint Louverture Airport, named after the hero of the Haitian Revolution, um, and they blocked humanitarian flights from groups like Médecins Sans Frontières. They blocked them from landing so that they could bring in military equipment and uh, do everything they needed first to kind of set up command centers and protect themselves. They also brought ships to the shores of Haiti and they turned back boatloads of people who were trying to seek refuge and get away from the earthquake affected area. And so the whole operation in the initial days was to contain it, right? To contain the disaster, to not let people leave and to, in fact, treat it like a military incident. And they actually had to, we found out from WikiLeaks that it was only retrospectively that Haitian President um, uh, Preval actually issued the order asking the U.S. military to come. In other words, they came uninvited. So some people considered it a sort of U.S. um, military takeover uh, of the airport during that very um, fragile period. And so lots of European groups, um, NGOs, and... Other international groups uh, from from Latin America complained, and they they said this is not right. This should not have been militarized in this way. More broadly, though, like humanitarian responders kind of then use that infrastructure to move around and to get there. And they also have to set up, um, you know, protected places where they can have their personnel, where they can um, stage their kind of food supplies and, and all of those things. So there's this deep kind of enmeshing of military and humanitarian disaster response. And it's very problematic because it locks out the civil society, the local actors, the even the local government from controlling what happens.
0: That just reminds me, Mimi, of a, a phrase that I hear in establishment media all the time. And it, it relates to, they, they, uh, over the holidays, they were relating it to the bombing in Nashville when they re- would refer to the area, the devastated area. Days later uh, Looking like a war zone And they always say this when it comes to Disasters and as you point out All disasters are both natural as well As human made there is a content uh, Contribution from both natural As well as human made and it just reminds me Of that phrase it's like A war zone how much do you think the Kind of rhetoric of seeing Areas as uh, Even natural unnatural disasters As areas of war zone As an area of a war zone how much What kind of impact do you think that has on the response? Because one of the things that you write is As we face the ongoing unnatural disasters of the 21st century These tensions and dispossessions and disaster recovery Become ever more pertinent to what kinds of futures we will create Using uh, the response to the 2010 Haitian earthquake as a model As an example, what could a militarized and carceral response to climate change In what they are addressing like a war zone What could that mean?
2: That's such a good point, because you're pointing to the the power of discourse or framing, you know, like what kinds of narratives or stories we tell. And when we call something a war zone, we're kind of saying uh, the normal rules don't apply here. Right. Like we're saying, okay, we can we can just sort of uh, do what we want. We don't have to go through normal processes, Um, you know, like when you declare um, a military emergency and. Just like the concerns we see around uh, Donald Trump and and h- how he's acted in, in Washington D.C. during you know the protests where he tried to bring in military troops, I mean, if you have that kind of militarized militarized response to something that's a political situation, it changes the the ground rules. It changes um, what kind of actions can happen, and. It also interrupts the ability to treat um, a disaster as somewhere where, you know, solidarity can emerge and things like people's assemblies and building um, kind of social networks that can help each other. Uh, All of those things get kind of pushed out where there's a presence of troops and where there's a discourse around a war zone. And the same goes for the question of climate change. When we frame it as this problem of, oh, we're going to be flooded by climate refugees um, and we want to build border walls, that's a way of framing it that militarizes it and turns it into a carceral problem. And that's exactly what led to this country locking up refugees, right, separating children from their parents, putting them in cages because of that discursive framing. It sort of legitimized the government to do that.
0: And you write that uh, Caribbean islands Often host military bases Weapons testing ranges or migrant Detention facilities as well as plans for Realities of gated hotels And residential developments, tourist Resorts and privatized beaches And nature preserves or protected Marine areas with limited access These detached zones operate as what Keller Easterling calls Realms of exception with transient Populations, temporary status and Impermanent imper- and installations Island archipelagos enable such extra state infrastructure space to persist, to expand, to mutate, and to metastasize. Keller was on our show back in 2016 to talk about her book, Extra State Craft. And if people want to find that interview, they can at our website. She uses the word metastasize. Do, Do these realms of exception, do they spread like a cancer among island nations and in the Caribbean? And what is life like lived in a realm of exception, especially when that exception is on an island?
2: I think it's important to remember that there's um, a long history of this. And I kind of link the realm of exception, that idea of this extra state zone to the sugar plantation itself and the origins of um, slavery and indigenous genocide in the Caribbean. I mean, when Christopher Columbus came back on his second voyage, he came back to plant sugar colonies in Hispaniola, which is the island shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic, he brought his sons there to run sugar plantations that were based on the, the system used um, by his wife's family in the Canary Islands. That's where, you know, sugar plantations uh, were imported from, from there into the Caribbean. So we have this kind of model of these, these zones, these plantation zones. And then later, that model over time becomes these other kinds of states of exception um what what i call offshore um, zones where there could be um factories that are doing this kind of export processing uh with low taxation or there could be like you said these gated tourist enclaves and they each kind of are in geographically they're in that island that space but they're connected to these um Extra territorial flows of capital and ownership and the, the people arriving there and profiting from them, um, enjoying them. And so there's this weird like overlay of Caribbean sort of geographical space with all of these offshore and extra state zones that are on top of it and within it. So I think that islands are a place where we can really see that happening but it happens more broadly, you know, all around the world now. So it's become a sort of common um, framework for these kinds of developments um, where there's ports, where there's sort of migrant laborers that are brought in and kept in these separate, you know, big housing areas. And they can only come and go to work and then leave, which um, Deborah Cohen writes about in her book on um, the deadly life of logistics. Um, and as you say, Keller Easterling has written about and um you know, the, this is a model that's becoming more and more the norm in a way, like the 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 system of sort of national public infrastructure has broken down. Um, it's been splintered to refer to another book called Splintering Urbanism. And instead, we have this like mix of uneven infrastructure and of kind of what I call kinetic elites who are able to move in and out of these places more easily. And local populations are just brought in and out as low-paid um, service workers.
0: There's a sense in often in these disasters, especially when it comes to the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, that the problems faced by the Haitian people are insurmountable because it is unaffordable. It, you would take so many resources to help these people out that there just aren't that many resources in the world. That's the that's the impression that we're all always given. Yet you're saying that uh, civil society groups that want to come in and help the Haitian people are being blocked by the U.S. military. And you also point out that that's also the U.N. peacekeepers' mission in these areas. What does it reveal to you about the West in general when the U.N. shares the same mission as the U.S. military in containing refugees during times of disaster, not doing whatever is best to help those victims of disaster?
2: Well, the you know, the U.N. has a long and troubled history in Haiti in relation to its peacekeeping troops, as well as in other parts of the world um, in Haiti, it's the most recent mission, which was called MINUSTA. Uh, and, I, and I write about in the book, the, in particular, the problem um, that surfaces of sexual exploitation of women and children by these troops. And also, I link it to the fact that even the, the sort of academic researchers and the emergency responders and the different NGO groups they also are involved in sexual exploitation uh, in Haiti. And, for example, Oxfam, uh, UK, got kicked out of the country because of the, the really um, disgusting use of groups of sex workers in what we referred to as orgies. So that, you know, often when we talk about these big things about, you know, like disaster recovery and building back better and infrastructure, we don't talk about things like that. But I argue in the book that that is really crucial to understanding how power relations work. That is, who's accountable and who's exploiting uh, the situation? So the UN peacekeeping troops have been a real thorn in Haiti. A lot of people feel that it's an occupation, just as they feel that the U.S. has carried out occupations there, which the U.S. has. And and in both cases, the 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 troops are not keeping the peace. The the troops are exploiting uh, children, for example, and they're also kind of containing a political situation in which there are protest movements, there are grassroots movements, there's peasant movements, women's movements, movements of young people who are trying to change the political situation, and instead. The United Nations stabilization force stabilizes the situation and, in fact, has helped maintain a completely illegitimate presidency.
0: You write that Haitian struggles for post-earthquake recovery, therefore, should be understood within the wider context of the global economic system. U.S. imperialism in the Caribbean region and the militarized management of migrant interception and humanitarian projects. These social forces together set the wider nets of racialized migrant detention and deportation, revealing the entwining of mobility regimes and racial boundary drawing. Is the militarized U.S. disaster response and U.N. disaster response about keeping non-white people out of the United States and out of other Western European countries? Is U.S. disaster response different when the crisis is happening in a predominantly white nation or region?
2: Well, I mean, we see uh, this kind of what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois called, you know, the global color line. Um, and he said the color line was the problem of the 20th century. Uh, in the 21st century, the color line takes slightly different forms. And, you know, we see, say, the, the Central American migrants who are coming in what are called the caravans. Many of those are people um, of Mayan uh, indigenous origin um, who are trying to move north away from both climate crisis and um the, the effects of U.S. military interventions in Central America, which led to the sort of current um, violence that's happening there. So wh- when we talk about a disaster response by the U.S. military, I would put it in a much longer context that the U.S. military hasn't in- been involved in destabilizing Caribbean and Central American governments for a long time, right? Um, and with the, you know, the new uh, Democrats in power or whatever, um, we need to keep fighting for a transformation of U.S. policy towards the Caribbean and Central America because it has been very racially um, unjust and it has been racist um, in terms of the exclusion of people who's, able, who's allowed to enter the United States. And Haitians in particular, um, it's a combination of not just uh, race, but race, class and um, positioning of different countries within this kind of global hierarchy. Um, But we, you know, intervened in so many Central American countries in the Grenada Revolution, in destabilizing the democratic socialist government of Michael Manley. So um, and destabilizing more socialist governments in in that were attempted in other parts of the Caribbean. And of course, the embargo of Cuba. And the question is, how can we change that relationship that we have with the region. How can we change U.S. policy so it's not constantly repeating this suppression of socialist and democratic people's alternatives, which I argue are really the only way the region will survive under the extreme conditions of climate change that are coming. And the Caribbean is um, one of the most vulnerable regions to climate change in the world today.
0: And you point out that there is an absurdity of the humanitarian project to save Haiti and, as you were pointing out earlier, build back better, as the global response dubbed its mission. When so often the mobilization of aid not only built on these processes of uneven mobilities, but actually undermined the efforts to mobilize everyday life by those it claimed to help and produced further distortions in infrastructure and unequal accessibility. Why can't – I want to make sure people understand this – why can't an unequal system provide the necessary disaster response needed for that disaster's victims? Is inequality vulnerable to crisis and unequal systems incapable of effectively responding to any crisis?
2: Yeah, certainly, because, you know, the the money flows to the top, right? When you have these deeply unequal systems, we see that it's, you know, the, the billionaires of the world who get richer during a crisis, they're, they're making tons of money, and it's just what's happening now in the United States. And we see that the political system is, is not able to help support the, the, you know, the rest of the population, unless the rest of the population has political power. I mean, if, if you don't have political power the unequal system will keep accruing uh, rewards and advantages to the top.
0: So let's expand on that just a little bit more. You write the destructive processes occurring across the region and the world are not only impacting Haiti, but are part of the making of unsustainable global economies as well as much in the global north as in the Caribbean. How does disaster response in Haiti reveal the unsustainability of global economies.
2: And so I make that argument because Haiti is so often held up as this kind of poster child, you know, victim of um, a, a bad governance and instability and violence and, and so on. And in many ways, that's a complete myth. It's, it's, it's this legacy of what's called Haiti's bad press ever since they threw over colonial imperial slaving powers and posed a threat to that regime, and they still pose a threat. And the Caribbean, every time it's tried to um, develop alternatives, they posed a threat to the pa- those in power, and so they get crushed. And so when we talk about Haiti as an example, it's not an example as like, oh, this poor place, and this is what's gonna go wrong in the world it 's an example of how we are involved in it. We are part of it. We, we make the relationships that create these circumstances that then lead to these kinds of disasters and there 's a longer history there of you know why so many people were living in Port au prince in shanty towns because of the displacement on um, the the you know devastation of the rural agricultural sector, because of uh, Clinton policies, world bank policies IMF loans, etc. Um, But, you know, that story is linked to our story. So it's not about, oh, they're the canary in the coal mine. um, But it's that this is a story of planetary inequality and extractive economies and exploitation and genocide and racial capitalism. And that those are things we need to fix here. We don't need to fix Haiti. We need to fix what we're doing in the United States. And we need to put pressure on our government to change the policies that are leading to ecocide and the destruction of the world.
0: So how misleading is it then when the United States or commentators here in the United States blame the Haitian government, its ineffectiveness, its corruption for the problems within Haiti? How much is that misleading or misdirecting us from what the real problems are?
2: I think it's very misleading because when you think of corruption, it takes two to tango, right? Somebody has to put up the money that corrupts somebody else. And so the corruption doesn't lie within the so-called corrupt governments. It lies within the international system that allows these kind of backroom deals and flows of capital and offshore banks and tax evasion and the narcotics economy and gun trade and all of these things, that's what creates corruption. It's a system. It's not just, oh, they're bad actors over there. So, like, let's be honest about where corruption comes from and uh, who's involved in it.
0: How much do you think that these ideas of going in and policing, having having a a carceral response, is this kind of current disaster response regimen do you think it's intentionally meant to exploit, continue the violence of financial capitalism and the environmental degradation that undermines Haitian sovereignty and democracy? Or, are, or do you think this is motivated by true believers who feel that unbridled capitalism, the market without any limits, can save Haiti? Is this intentional exploitation or misguided faith in the market to fulfill needs without government?
2: Well, when you see like the the key major projects that were built immediately after the earthquake with the money from the international community, were you know the Caracol Industrial Park, which is you know Korean companies producing um, things with low tax exports, and the um, the Hilton Hotel. The hotel was rebuilt for international visitors, and there were plans to build a port in the north of Haiti, which would have. been used for gold and nickel mining and like you you look at each of those projects and you're like this is not helping the people of Haiti right Uh, mining and ports and industrial estates and and even like industrial level kind of agriculture projects using Monsanto seeds none of this was about helping Haitian people So uh, I I think it's really cynical of those who say like, oh, we're trying to like restart the economy. We're trying to, you know, uh, the market will save us because it's a market that relies on complete exploitation of people and the land.
0: You mentioned Amelia Moore, who was on our show, about her book on the Anthropocene and how it relates to the Bahamas. You write how Haiti may in some ways exemplify one of the prime global locations for analyzing histories of and resistances against colonization and plantation slavery, military occupation and neoliberalism, tourism and offshoring, as well as today's uneven im. Mobilities associated with international peacekeeping, humanitarianism, and international research. Amelia, not, she not only points towards the inequality of disaster response, which you also point to in your work, but she, she also mentions how uh, the Bahamas could be a laboratory for understanding what happens with the Anthropocene. Is Haiti, our islands, more laboratories of the Anthropocene or... Potentially laboratories of political transformation for the revolution necessary for society to best respond to climate change. Because here you have people who are isolated, who are contained, who don't have any other avenue for a response and are forced into a political response. So are islands more laboratories of the Anthropocene or political transformation in response to the Anthropocene?
2: Okay, well, I'm going to point you towards another great book, which is coming out soon. It's by David Chandler and Jonathan Pugh, P-U-G-H, and it's called Anthropocene Islands. And they are addressing precisely these different ways of thinking about islands um, as laboratories of the Anthropocene or in other ways as relational um, networks and, and kind of uh, archipelago archipelagic formations, and also as patchworks. And the idea of patchwork theory, patchwork thinking is a very interesting one that's coming um, out right now, drawing on things like Anna Singh's work, uh, Mushroom at the End of the World, and other theorists. And I argue that There's a way in which we shouldn't think of um, islands as isolated. um, I I talk about the islanding effect, which kind of creates this um, imaginary of the isolated island, when in fact islands are extremely um, networked and they do have this kind of patchwork connection across many different locations, which are trying to deal with and um, survive and resist the kind of current um, global world economy and come up with alternative ways of living and thriving and planting um, foods, food security, food justice, and um, sexual and gender justice and other kinds of movements. Um, and so I, I argue for sort of helping connect those patches and grow in a kind of more fractal um, pattern that the Caribbean has always been really central and important to those kinds of movements and that kind of alternative thinking.
0: Uh, you we back in november sorry back in november we spoke with geographer alistair bonnet author of elsewhere a journey into our age of islands on the misplaced idea of an island as an escape a place to get away from it all instead an island is something from which you cannot escape as you point out at times of disaster does the idea that islands are an escape to get away from it all lead to any lack of recognition we may have that they can also be places from which you cannot escape disaster from where you can be contained entrapped and, and not an escape from it all, but a, a trap.
2: Yeah. I mean, then that goes back to the idea of the carceral uh, island and the way um, in which uh, Alison Mounts and other collaborators, um, Jenna Lloyd, have written about how islands have been used as prisons. They've been used as these military bases. They're used as detention centers um, and and also as these kind of gated enclave um, expat or tourist communities. Now we see the kind of nomadic workers who are getting their special work permits to be able to go to islands. There's the purchase of private islands and there's the cryptocurrency people who are, you know, trying to build these new islands or use um, appropriate existing islands to kind of create these non-state crypto uh, utopias all of that is happening, and islands do kind of play this special role in the imaginary of these kind of separate bounded entities surrounded by water um, but But again that 's part of the sort of myth making around islands, I would say.
0: One last question for you We have been speaking with sociologist Mimi Scheller Author of Island Futures, Caribbean Survival in the Anthropocene And again, as we do with so many of our guests We have just skimmed the very surface of this book There is... So much more to Mimi's writing uh, about islanding, about the concepts of offshoring, uh, about the ways in which the ecological degradation caused by 500 years of colonialism throughout the Caribbean. There is so much more to this book. So if you've enjoyed our conversation, definitely go out and get Mimi's book because I found it it just amazing. One last question for you, Mimi, and we call our final question for all of our guests the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer our audience audience is going to hate your response. But I think that you're, this is going to fall into the final category. People are not going to like your response to this. You write, questions of mobility justice therefore remain crucial to many key issues facing Haiti today, from migration, deportation, diaspora, and borders, to tourism, ecology, and land use planning, to communication infrastructure, digital access, and cultural circulation. Now, I, I don't mean to be flippant or glib, but the way that you describe it, and it, although it may come off as flippant or glib. But how akin is Haiti or any island in the wake of militarized U.S. disaster relief? How akin is it to an open air prison or a military occupation? Because my bigger question is, is this the kind of recovery and response we can expect here within the United States domestically when it comes to climate change?
2: Um, I think there that there's different ways of like thinking about future scenarios. And one of them is the kind of fortress, right? The really deep, dark, you know, military imprisonment that we can see um, not only in Haiti, but in, um, you know, in our in our cities and in the, the discourse describing our urban areas as, you know, like violent and we need to call in national guard troops and all that kind of thing. Um, but that's completely, um, uh, you know, uh manipulative right it's a political manipulation um, to describe it that way and there's so much more happening and a big part of the book is also recognizing there's so much more to haitian culture there's so much more to the practices the spiritual practices of voodoo and of haitian creole language and of the deep cultural um, formations that have come out of haitian history And that those are the things we need to nurture and preserve and grow um, to to counter that kind of um, really dark, um, empty vision of the future of the world.
0: And it brings a focus on the history, the colonial history of the Caribbean. And, you know, it's an area that is often overlooked that we just see it, as you point out, as isolated islands that have nothing to do with one another, when in fact that they are all very much connected as the world is becoming more and more connected. Mimi, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. This really is an amazing book, and it makes you think about the world in a completely different way and makes you understand the world better. And that's what our whole goal is here on the show. Sociologist Mimi Scheller is author of Island Futures, Caribbean Survival, and the Anthropocene. Thank you so much for being on our show today.
2: Thank you, Chuck. It's been great talking with you.
0: All right, take care. Okay, bye bye. And after a serious conversation like that, I like to say, read taglines like this. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week, or today's show, Wednesday's show, as always, is Richard Norwood. This week's question from Hell is, how should we commemorate Chuck's, that's me, my 25 years of radio service? How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? I got the impression at the beginning of the interview that... She thought this might be a black station or something when she said, it reminds me that I was on a black station, WURD, 25 years ago. Did you get that sense? Well, not at all. Okay. I wasn't too sure because listeners have showed up at Carrie's Lounge downstairs and they've asked the bartenders there if I'm black, which is like the weirdest thing in the world. My voice is, what? What? Anyway, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin, in the moment of truth, this week, Jeff looks a war horse in the mouth. Richard, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. If you'd yes. like.
1: Oh, no, I, I do like. <laughs> I just needed to find the right place. All right. Jeremy T. says, with video. But be <laughs> careful. I've heard that M. Effer has a history with radio stars. <laughs> All right. Robert P. says, with 25 pounds of pot.
0: Everybody's going to say something. To commemorate my 25 years on the radio, everybody wants to give me pot, which is fine by me, and 25 pounds would...
1: Do well, well for about the rest of your life? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>
0: <laughs> maybe a year. Okay, <laughs> That's disturbing, <laughs> actually. It might take a few <laughs> years. It would take a few years, okay? <laughs> Several years.
1: Uh, our Jeffrey says, make him guest of honor at a celebrity roast hosted by Gilbert Gottfried.
0: <laughs> okay, I'd
1: do that. Max I says... Uh, commemorate him with a uh, Butch Coleridge's gold watch. <laughs> All right, a gold watch. Maybe Not I should get just a gold. Any watch. gold watch. <laughs> I know
0: exactly. watch. <laughs> My uh, grandfather, when he retired after 35 years at Ford's, because in Detroit you call it Ford's, uh, he got a gold watch, and that was it.
1: <laughs> Do you remember? Where Butch Coldridge comes from? No, I do not. Uh, I had to look it up because I didn't remember, but it's one of the characters from Pulp Fiction. Oh, oh,
0: okay. I've seen that movie enough and I just don't remember the name.
1: Aaron D. says a cameo as a robot alien henchman in the upcoming Hellboy sequel project being produced by Steve Mnuchin after he takes care of that $2,000 stimulus check thing. (laughs) Hellboy C, what the hell? Fabio L says, joint contributor to ABC News alongside Rom (laughs) Emanuel. I'd
0: really like that. I'd keep giving him dead fish.
1: (laughs) Sebastian M says, 25, quote, this is hell, stickers, and a loving pat on the ass. (laughs) Nice. Mark C says, having a gathering at his favorite bar featuring a beer and a liverwurst breakfast. Alright.
0: Liver worse. Okay. I would like Braunschweiger more, same thing, I guess.
1: Anthony S. says a Joe Rogan, Ben Jarvoski, CBC Public Radio Interview Tour. <laughs> no. John C. <laughs> says a silver commemorative trophy dedicated to the handsome silver tongued devil who puts the Mertz in the megahertz. <laughs>
0: Putting the Mertz in megahertz for 25 years? Uh, That's pretty funny. Yes, it is.
1: Um, Mar G says, 25 shots of (laughs) COVID-19 vaccine to make sure he lasts another 25.
0: By the way, a relative of mine who is not in the uh, healthcare industry uh, got his first vaccine the other day. I asked him why he was prioritized, and he's not telling me (laughs) why he got the uh,
1: shot. Uh, How big is his community? Uh, You know?
0: Yes, it's the municipality of Indianapolis
1: Oh, so that's you know you would think he'd be If he's not above I, Is he older than 65? No oh. Exactly I'm like 4,300,000 In the line
0: And I think I'm right behind you We're right in front of you in that line I think we're right in the same spot So I don't get it uh, I'll report back to everybody If I find out how the hell that happened
1: Alright, just two more Ray, And by uh, the way,
0: I know drug dealers Why can't drug dealers get me this vaccine? Right? It's a conundrum. Yes.
1: Roy O. says, send TH more money. All right. I like that. And Aaron B. says, 25 people contributing at least five bucks a month. Hit that Patreon, (laughs) y'all. Yeah,
0: I like that. Why don't 25 more of you sign up for Patreon? That would be a good way to celebrate 25 years here on This Is Hell. Again, our question from hell is, how should we commemorate? My 25 years of radio service here On This Is Hell Just send your response to Chuck Or post it on our Facebook page Or send it to us via Twitter And if you did not hear yesterday We're still looking for volunteer board operators Here on This Is Hell who can show up regularly One, two, three or more times a month Or even a week for the 10 a.m. daily show here at our studios Above Carrie's Lounge 2251 West of On here in Chicago Uh, And our Monday producer Daphne Augustine She is currently stuck in Chile as her uh, family has decided That that would be the best way To respond to the new variant Of the coronavirus and the surge that's Happening here in the United States or the continuing Waves of the virus that are happening here in the States So she won't be back here to join us until Mid-February so in the meantime Yes we are still looking for new Board operators here on This Is Hell and if you're interested All you have to do is email me at Chuck Richard who is On tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at This Is Hell
1: On Thursday, we have sociologist Peter Eichler on his paper, Labor Relations and the Overdose Crisis in the United States.
0: And in a moment of truth with Jeff George, and Jeff looks a war horse in the mouth. I've really been looking forward to this interview with Peter. He was supposed to be on the Monday of our last week in 2020, except I was having real problems with vertigo back then and so we had to cancel then this monday he was supposed to start our 2021 year except instead i was having back spasms that made it so i couldn't sleep and couldn't stand up straight or couldn't even descend stairs or climb up the stairs here to the studio so i would really have been looking forward to this conversation and really happy that peter's going to be on the show tomorrow it really is a great analysis of how the opioid crisis affects politics here in the United States. Thanks to everyone who has supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can also support This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Patreon podcast that has a new monologue from me and a classic archived interview that you cannot find anywhere else online. All you have to do is to sign up right now. Subscribe at patreon.com slash hell. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast post. Shortly after our live stream, I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thank you, Richard. Thanks to Mimi Scheller, our guest, and Alex Jerry for producing and all the stuff he does behind the scenes. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell.